let's say that you're on a pastoral search committee. You have two resumes in front of you. When you call the references on the back of these resumes, you receive the following reports. On the first candidate, you receive this report. He's over 50 years old. Nothing, no offense to that. 50 plus crowd. He's moved around quite a bit. He has at times been forced to leave certain areas after his work caused issues. He's been in jail three or four times. He's not in the greatest of health and has not gotten along very well with other leaders in the communities where he has served. He's not the best looking of guys either. Many consider him to be long-winded and not that dynamic of a speaker, but he loves Jesus. What would you be thinking after you received that report, if you, if you received that report today? First off, you might be thinking this guy's got to get some better references, right? It's a pretty bad report. But you might also be thinking, I, I hope I get a better report on the second candidate. Well, let's say you received this report on the second candidate. The people you talked to said the second candidate is a natural-born leader who people follow. He is committed to the church and is a popular and influential leader of God's people. He's also a decisive person who knows what he wants and who does not shy away from taking initiative. If you were evaluating these two candidates today, who would you lean toward? Be honest. The second one, right? Yeah, well, as you... Some of you already know, though I've protected the, the names of these individuals, both of these men were leaders in the first century. And if you can't believe it, the first candidate has had more influence on the advancement of the church and the advancement of God's people than the second. The former candidate is also more well-known and respected by you than the latter. The first candidate was also commissioned by Christ and directly praised for his work in ministry by Christ, by God, while the second person is spoken of briefly and was condemned in God's word. The first person you probably know by now is the Apostle Paul, while the second is a lesser known individual by the name of Diotrephes. Diotrephes is found in the small book of 3 John. We're told in Scripture that, that, that while Paul was a humble servant of the Lord, Diotrephes was the opposite. He was a prideful and arrogant man who had taken himself out from under any and every leader. Any and every authority he had removed himself from. While Paul considered himself the, the least of the apostles, and while Paul was teachable, Diotrephes thought too highly of himself and refused to listen to anyone, not even John, an apostle of the Lord Jesus. Though Diotrephes was a recognized leader in the early church, he was condemned by God in his word. John refers to him as an insubordinate and evil man who speaks wicked nonsense. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? To say the least. Here's my point. Though we have our own criteria that we follow when evaluating Christian leaders, 
At times, what we see and what God sees and what we value and what God values are completely different. Therefore, we need to search the scriptures to see what pleases God when it comes to Christian leadership. And we need to be careful how we evaluate Christian leaders. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We are going to be reading and discussing verses 1 through 5 this morning. And as we've said already, the Christians at Corinth, they had issues, right? Which is one of the main reasons that Paul wrote this book. He knew that this church was just being crippled by a whole host of issues. In their first five years of existence, this church had problem after problem, the most severe being that of division. And there was more than just two sides to this division, right? It wasn't like there were just one or two individuals arguing over carpet color. No, these Christians at Corinth were just filled with divisions and schisms. They were divided into four or more opposing groups. And the groups were divided over two things in particular. They were divided over opinions and people. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Opinions and people. They were divided over worldly philosophies and and human wisdom, and they were also divided over Christian leadership. And in our passage for this morning, Paul is going to focus on the latter of these two. He's going to focus on Christian leadership and and, and that, that which was causing division there at Corinth. And as we said last week, Remember we said last week the, the, the Christians at Corinth, they were followers of men. They were. They followed pagan philosophers and adopted their beliefs and practices, but they also attached themselves to men of faith and elevated these godly men in an ungodly manner, and these allegiances were causing divisions in the church. Now, I know we talked about this last week, but it needs to be mentioned again, though we can understand why attaching themselves to to these these, uh, different pagan philosophers and adopting their beliefs and practices, we know why that was causing division because they were in in, uh, uh, opposition of one another. But, But why would they be divided over following Paul and Apollos and Peter? Is there any difference in doctrine? between these individuals? Did God favor one or prefer one over another? No, but they had found a way to divide over these godly men who were each favored by God and in agreement with one another. So so Paul comes along and he makes the point here that they are not to, to compare and be critical of men who have been favored and called and approved by God. Now Paul is not saying that this should never happen. He's not saying we should never question leaders or critique or judge those in Christian leadership. Obviously, there are times, aren't they, to aren't there to uh, to question and even separate ourselves from certain pastors and church leaders. For example, if they're spreading false doctrine or if their life is spiritually shoddy, Scripture is clear that those are times when leaders are to be questioned, disciplined, and possibly even removed 
from leadership. But like we said last week, that was not the case with these individuals, was it? Paul and Apollos and Peter were all faithful and godly men committed to the truth. And Paul says, when you have a situation like this, where where each Christian leader is sound in their doctrinal beliefs, where each Christian leader is faithful and godly, then you are not to be critical of them and create conditions to place on these individuals and divide over these created and manufactured differences. That's Paul's point in this text. For example, if you have two men, two godly individuals who are both faithfully following Christ and and committed to preaching His Word and who both know and accurately communicate truth, you're you're not to come along and say, well, this individual is better because he has more degrees behind his name. Or this guy should be followed because he's not as long-winded as this individual over here. Or because his church is bigger and, and he's baptizing more people, this is the pastor to follow and avoid this one. Paul says those evaluations are baseless. And they are without merit. And again, leaders are ungodly, unfaithful, and fail to communicate truth. That's different. But you are not to critique and be divided over men of faith because they fail to meet up to your subjective requirements. That's Paul's point here. When an attempt to correct this faulty way of thinking, Paul in this passage gives his readers the proper way to view leaders in the church. In these verses, he is going to show us the proper way to think about individuals and is going to show us what God expects from Christians in leadership. And and church, this passage comes at 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 a good time for us, doesn't it? As we're praying about and, and talking through the, the process of, of bringing on a, a new staff guide, this is, this is important for us to, to keep in mind. So I pray this morning will be beneficial for you when you're thinking about Christian leadership. In this passage, Paul gives us four marks of a minister, four key characteristics of Christian leaders. All right, Here's the first mark he gives us. Number one, Christian leaders are to be thought of as servants of Christ. Servants of Christ. When you think about Christian leaders, you should think of them as servants of Christ. Look at the first part of verse 1. Paul says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ. Now, the key word in the first part of verse 1 is that word, servant. Paul says, when you think of Christian leaders, think of them as servants. Now, if you have, your, if you have a King James Bible in here, don't worry, I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But if you have one, it'll be translated minister in there. And many look at that word minister, and they, it, it brings with it a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, inaccurate ideas about this word here. Many people think of that word minister, and they think of it as this, this kind of you know, this dignified and distinguished title, like he is a minister of the Lord Jesus. That's the way they kind of view that word. But, but do you know what a better translation for this word is? Well, bear with me for just a minute as I give you a very, very, very brief Greek lesson on the word translated servant or minister. As many of you know, in the, in the New Testament, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. 
And at times, it's good to refer back to the Greek New Testament to get a deeper meaning on certain words. Well, the word translated minister or servant here in the English has many different Greek words that, you could, that, 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 that could be used. For example, you have the word oikites, which means a domestic household servant. You have doulos, which means a bond slave, somebody in chains. You have the word diakonos, which means an employee or a servant. And then you have the word huperites. Huperites, other than just being fun to say, refers to a person in the lowliest of positions. Now, of all these different Greek words, which one do you think is used in verse 1? Yeah, the last one. The last one. He uses the last one, hooperites. That word, hooperites, means an under rower. In Paul's day, the Roman warships primarily depended upon a large number of slaves to handle the oars. And there were different levels. And the bottom group of guys had the brunt of the work and were considered the lowliest of slaves, and they were called the hooperites, the under rowers, the galley slaves. They were the bottom guys. This word was also later used of individuals who were in secondary service of those in important positions. So Paul says here, when you think of Christian leaders, don't think of them as kind of these higher-ups, these dignified, distinguished, prominent men. He says, think of them as galley slaves, as under-rowers. Don't exalt them. Think of them as merely servants who are responsible to the Master, the Lord Jesus. Paul says, when you think of us, what do you think of me? Think of us as galley slaves. Chapter 3, verse 5, remember Paul makes a similar point. He says, you guys are arguing over who's better, Paul or Apollos. He says, who is Paul? Who's Apollos? We are nothing but servants. Now the word used there is the word diakonos, which once again means an employee or a hired hand. The English equivalent is a busboy or a table waiter. And, and remember, Paul says that to make the point in the same way you don't exalt busboys, you don't exalt Christian leaders. Now he's revisiting this point once again, but he's using an even lowlier Greek word to, to make this point with even greater emphasis. He's saying when you think of us, when you think of pastors and church leaders, you are to think of us as galley slaves for Christ. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's just Paul, you know. Paul's a pretty radical guy. He's pretty extreme. To refer to ministers in this way, that's a bit much. Well, let me ask you, where did he get this view of himself and other ministers? In the book of Acts, in chapter 26, Paul is telling of his conversion. And he recalls the words of the Lord Jesus that were spoken to him on the road to Damascus. And listen to what Jesus says to Paul in verse 16. He says, rise and stand upon your feet. This is Jesus talking to Paul. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness. What do you think the word servant used there in the Greek is? What Greek word? 
Jesus says, I have appointed you to be a hooperites for me, a galley slave for me. Paul very much viewed his ministry in this way and his position in this way, which is why he didn't want to be elevated in an ungodly way for his service to the Lord. Now still, some of you may be thinking, that still sounds harsh. That seems a bit extreme to view a pastor or a church leader in this way as just a galley slave, as the lowliest of servants. But believe it or not, this is a healthy perspective to have. It is. Remember the Corinthians, like we said, they were followers of men. And this led them away from Christ and into all kinds of problems. Exalting godly leaders in an ungodly way led to their division and discord. Which is why Paul goes to great lengths over and over again in this book to say, get your focus off of us. Get your focus off of men and turn your eyes to Jesus. He says, listen to our message, because our message is God-given. Listen to our message, but fix your gaze upon the Lord. Direct your worship toward Him. Believers, like we've talked about already, when we do that, if this would be our perspective, we'd be well on our way to being the type of people and the type of church that God has called us to be. Here's the second mark. Christian leaders are called to be stewards of God's Word. Stewards of God's Word. Look again at verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul tells us in the second half of this verse that Christians are more than servants. They're also, that Christian leaders are more than servants. They're also to be viewed as stewards. Now, just as the word servant is the key word in the first half of verse 1, stewards is the key word in the second part of the first verse. If you've ever flown on a commercial airplane, you know what a steward does, right? He or she, they, they dole out information about the plane. They share with those who are, who are on the plane about the different policies and procedures in case of an emergency. And most importantly, they hand out food and drinks during the flight, right? But let me ask you this. Does a steward or a flight attendant own anything that's dispensed on the airplane? No. The company owns it. He or she just passes it out. That's what a steward does. He or she takes what's been given to them and administers it without fail. Pastors and church leaders are called to do the same thing. We have the same responsibility. We are God's stewards. God gifts and entrusts Christian leaders with what is His, and then He calls for them to dispense it, to hand it out without fail. So pastors and church leaders, here's what their main role is, to use their God-given gifts to distribute the things of God to the people of God. That's what they do. Now the next question we need to ask is this, what are we to be stewards of? What am I to be 
distributing. What am I to be handing out as a pastor? Paul tells us in verse 1, the mysteries of God. Remember, we discussed what the mysteries of God is in in chapter 2. The mysteries of God is just another way of saying the wisdom of God, the gospel of God, the word of God, the revelation that's found in this book. So my role as a pastor, according to Scripture, is to be a good steward of this book. My role is to take God's revelation and pass it out to the household of God. To take what God has given me and to pass it out to others. Like I've said before, though there are a lot of pastors doing good things in our world today, I'm fearful that that some are failing to do the most important thing, which is to take God's word and dispense it, to get it out to God's people. That's the primarily what God has called us to do, to be his stewards. Or another way of putting it is to be his table waiters. He gives us the food and it's our job to get it out to those who are there. So though the job description of a pastor may be endless and differ. Depending upon who you talk to, the primary role of the pastor, the central focus of a Christian leader is found right here in 1 Corinthians 4. It is to study and know and properly and accurately communicate the Word of God. This is a serious responsibility, which is why it's important we hold this mark of the minister in the highest regard. More than wanting a CEO type who's creative and and productive and cutting edge and getting results. More than wanting a funny, sociable guy who, who makes us laugh and keeps us entertained. This position right here is about being a steward. It's about taking the message of the master and administering it faithfully to others. That's the primary role of the minister. When evaluating a pastor, when looking at a pastor, that's a, that's a great question to ask. When bringing on a staff person, that's a great question to ask. How does he handle the Word of God? Does he study it? Does he apply it? Does he live it? Does he hand it out? Evaluate your own life this morning by those things. If this is God's primary concern, how are you doing in these areas? Do you study the Word of God? Do you apply the Word of God? Do you deliver the Word of God? My prayer is that we would be a church that is serious about being biblical. Man, that's what I want to be known for in this community, don't you? More than anything else, I want to be known as the church that is serious about this book right here, that is serious about being biblical. May that be true of us. May we be good stewards of God's Word. In addition to being a steward of the Word of God, the third key Paul gives us, third key characteristic of a Christian leader, is that Christian leaders are also expected to be faithful to the call. Faithful to the call. In verse 2, Paul says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So not only are Christian leaders to be regarded as servants and stewards, but it's essential that they be found faithful. Faithfulness is the most important quality 
of a Christian leader. God does not require brilliance, creativity, or popularity, thank goodness. Though he can use those things, he doesn't require them. But faithfulness is absolutely essential. He just wants faithfulness. God clearly tells us time and time again what he wants from his table waiters is for them to dish out the food the way it came out of the kitchen. Follow me? That's what he wants. He doesn't want us sprucing it up by adding to it or taking away from it. He wants us to give it out the way it was given to us. Faithfulness. Another major issue in pastoral ministry today is though you have quite a few table waiters dispensing food from God's word, many are messing up the order along the way. They're not passing it out the way it was meant to be delivered. And in the same way, an owner of a restaurant would not be okay with his waiters messing up the order. In the same way, God is not okay with his stewards messing up his message. And believers, this goes for us all. Paul is speaking specifically about pastors and church leaders here. There are other places in Scripture where we are told, all told, to be faithful stewards. It's so important that we don't fall into the trap of taking God's Word and twisting it to meet our own needs, our own desires, and our own ends. The Word of God is to be given out the way God intended it. It's not to be twisted to line up with our own opinions or or misinterpreted to meet our own needs and our own desires. We are to understand it the way God meant for it to be understood. We're to apply it the way God meant for it to be applied, and we're to teach it the way God meant for it to be taught. Now, if we're honest, must admit that this is difficult for us at times because faithfulness is because we you know we ultimately we want results and at times we'll do whatever it takes to get those results because we live in a results driven kind of culture don't we I mean if you go on a diet though it's good that you eat healthy and and keep the diet and that's good for you and and that you exercise you want to lose weight right That's the big goal, lose weight. In the workplace, though, employers want someone who is trustworthy and someone who is is faithful, they also want the work being done to produce better results, right? And at times, these kind of expectations are placed upon the ministers in ministry. Listen, this is key. God does not want us to so much focus on the results as he wants us to focus on being faithful. Like Paul says in chapter 3, God expects us to, to water and to plant, but who brings the growth? Who brings the increase? It is, it is, it is God. Unfortunately, there have been many churches today along with the the Corinthian church in the first century who have abandoned what they should be doing for things they think will draw a crowd and produce results. It's true. I read in a, a story recently in a magazine about a pastor who when he was interviewed in a magazine said he believed the pulpit was no longer meant to be a teaching platform. He said, and this is a quote from him, he said, it's a mistake to teach and preach. He said, don't 
preach sermons create an experience. This pastor had abandoned what he had been called to do for something else altogether. For something that he believed would, would draw a crowd and produce results. Believer, believers, God, he calls us to be faithful. No matter how few or how many people walk through those doors back there Sunday after Sunday, no matter how few or how many people join this church and come to Christ and follow in believers' baptism, we are not to abandon what God has called us to do. We're to be faithful. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that when we do those things, there, there will be, it will bring fruitful results. I believe that God will work and do a great work in and through that situation, but we are called to be faithful, and we are called to leave the results to God. Called to take this message, God's message, and deliver it the way God intended it to be delivered. And believers, let me tell you, if I ever stop doing that, I should be removed as your pastor. Because to do that would be to fail to do the, the primary thing that God called me to do here. Later in the book, in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting. In other words, me preaching the gospel doesn't make me any, any, any more special. It doesn't make me any more significant than anyone else. He goes on to say, for necessity is, is laid upon me, and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul said, woe to me if I do not do what Christ has called me to do. The same is true for me. This position is a calling. I've been called by God to be a servant of Christ and to be a faithful steward of God's Word. I'm simply doing what God has called me to do. And like Paul said, necessity has been laid upon me. And woe to me if I don't preach this gospel. The fourth and final mark, Christian minister, is that they are to have pure motives for ministry. Pure motives for ministry. Look at what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Like we've said time and time again, Corinthians had their favorites, right? They had their favorites. Some of them ranked Paul first, others ranked Apollos, and others ranked Peter first, and, and the others, they, you know, they considered Paul second or, or third at best. But let me ask you this, was Paul hurt by those who were critical of him? Or did it give a boost to his ego when some were complimentary of his person and work in ministry? No, you know why? He says, I don't even judge myself. And the reason why is because my standards and your standards are too low. We don't see the secret things that God sees in others and even in ourselves. That's what Paul's saying. He's basically saying here, though you may place me at the top of the list of, of faithful followers of Christ, God may not. 
And he's the one who truly knows because like David said in Psalm 7, it is God who is a righteous judge. It is God who judges me according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is within me. That's why Paul said at the end of verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. He knew that there is only one way that he and his ministry could be accurately evaluated, and that is by the Lord. God's evaluation is the only evaluation that truly counts. His examination is the only examination that sees everything, that exposes everything, that makes everything known. In verse 5, Paul says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive the commendation from God. We see from a very limited perspective, don't we? But God can see our entire life. He sees all of it. He sees the depths of you and me at a single glance. He can see the entire scope of who we are. There is nothing hidden from Him. All of our, all of our, our thoughts and our motives are an open book to him. And one day he is going to make these things known to us. So Paul says here, he makes the point here that, that, that he is living out the rest of his days in preparation for that day, for that evaluation that will come from the Lord is the only true evaluation. Because he has perfect insight and the authority to accurately judge us. So believers, as your pastor, according to this verse, I have to continue to strive to be all that God has called me to be. I have to continue to be faithful to do what God has, has called me to do and I have to keep my motives in check. You know why? Because it is God who gets the final word. God knows my deep motives. God knows me through and through and it is that evaluation that must truly matter to me. And believe me, you want me to have that perspective. You do. And I need that perspective and believers, the same is true for you. Let me ask you this morning, what is your motivation for the life that you are living for God? What's your motivation? You doing it for man's applause? To help you sleep at night? Or are you doing it for God's glory? There is only one motivation, only one aim that matters, and it's that. It's God's glory. Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians 10 when he said, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There is coming a day when we will all stand before the Lord. And the question that will matter most to him is not so much what we did for him, but why we did it. What was our motivation? And on that day, what will matter to us most is not what we think, it's not man's applause, but God's approval. So therefore, we need to be obedient. We need to be faithful. We need to keep our motives in check. And in everything we do, we need to make sure that we do it for God's glory. Would you pray with me?